alive and well and working in our lives and so often, especially when we're when we don't sense it or we're looking for change or movement or something, God, we, we really need your touch. And so I pray, God, that you would give that today in some way, in the way that you see fit for us to understand you better and to love you more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the beginning of, we are at the beginning of a year and um, I don't know about you, I love it when the new year starts, kind of get into a groove, we can start getting back to a normal kind of routine and things. But one thing I know that obviously people do at the beginning of every year is oftentimes people set goals for themselves, right? We call them resolutions, whatever you want to call them. We set goals for ourselves, and some of these goals might be physical, like a, a goal to lose a certain amount of weight or to exercise a certain amount of times every week, or they can be spiritual goals like, like reading our Bible or having a quiet time a certain time amount of times a week, or, or goals that are related uh, to our, our work, like certain achievement marks, certain sales and productivity. I'm going to sell 5,000 surfboards this year. You know, something, something, you know, having some kind of goal. We set these kind of goals, realistic goals, not like, unlike, not like that one. Um, but what, whatever, the reality is whatever goals that we set for ourselves, really the key to accomplishing or reaching that goal really is maintaining the motivation in reaching that goal, right? It's staying motivated to continue to be at it to what I need to do. Now, the dictionary, look, the dictionary defines motivation as this. Webster says, motivation is the reason or reasons one has for acting or behaving in a particular way. Okay? That's what motivation is. Like, for, like not, here's, for instance, for instance, in order to reach the goals of, of working out or spending time with God, having a quiet time a certain amount of times during the week, what we need to do is we need to have reason. We need to have motivation for that. And usually reason, like, say, like to have a, spend time in the word more, uh, more re, motivation isn't necessarily having the pastor up front going, read your Bible more, okay? We need to have some specific kind of motivation uh, for, for this, okay? It's like wanting to be in better in physical shape or having that uh, allows us to, react. I want to have a better life. I want to have a more, a quality of life. And I want my mental, my, I want my mental, I know like I've told people before, for me with my, the way my life works and how I deal with anxiety, I know that I have to work out four days a week. I have to have some, I have to have my heart raised level, heart rate level raised at least for a half hour, 40 minutes, four times a week. I have to, or I just really struggle mentally. Okay, or maybe it's wanting to um, spend, have a deeper intimacy with the Lord. It's the very thing that causes us to say, we, I want to spend time with God. But why? It's because we want to be more intimate with Him. Because we know really that the only way that we're going to be stay able to stay in step with Him and know His will is if we're experiencing intimacy with Him. So that's a reason. That's a motivation. A bad reason and a motivation for spending time with God and things like that is I better do it or God's going to not be happy with me. So we've got to have the right reasons and the right motivations. So in our study that we've been doing in the book of Acts, we've been looking at the beginnings of the early church and specifically how when people began a relationship with Jesus, what we have seen is that they immediately became motivated to be wholeheartedly devoted to God. We don't see very often where people were like, 
one foot in, one foot out. I mean, we had the whole Ananias and Sapphira. We had things like that where we could in some ways say, wonder, we don't even know if these people were truly apart in the first place. We, we don't, can't judge that, but we don't know. But for the most part, when people met the Lord, they were all in, all on board. And a lot of times it was because it was, their life was in, at stake, Okay. So in this morning, what we're going to do in this morning's passage is we're going to look at the specific motivation behind how a follower of Jesus is able to not only have, but to remain wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus, which in turn leads to radically loving him and loving others, okay? Now, this isn't step one, two, three, we're all going to walk out of here as spiritual giants. We all know that. But what we're just going to look at is what this passage has to say to us about being motivated to be completely wholehearted devoters, devoters, uh, followers of Jesus. Like, so like, like many of you, I'm in the same boat as you. I desire more than ever. I don't know about you, but I'm in a place in my life. I've been telling people I'm turning 58 in a week or so. And for some reason, 58, I thought it would be like 60 or 70 or 58. Remember back then, Joe? 58. <laughs> 58, for some reason, for me, feels like, wow, not that I'm done, but what's, what's next? Or what, am I doing everything I should be doing? You know, I, I, am, I did order a Corvette online, so I'm okay. Um, but, um, but what is, I'm really getting this sense of urgency in my life. And a lot of it, too, has to do with kind of this, all that I'm learning about the church and how to do church and things like that. But more than anything, I've found that in the midst of that, God is giving me a desire to grow. And I want to be motivated to be wholeheartedly devoted to him. And something that's I've been really, something, this is just all personal stuff now. God is really, everything I'm reading in the Bible almost every day seems to po- be pushing in my face. Love people, love people, love people. I'm reading how Paul loved people. I'm reading how people, I just couldn't, believe, and, I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, I don't love people like what I'm reading. <laughs> I don't. So I want that. So I, I really, really want that. So I'm asking God to help me with that and to help me be motivated. So, so that really, I need this teaching this morning as much as anyone here, believe me. So let's go. As you remember last week, remember that we left with Saul, really was the primary persecutor of Christians, having this incredible encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. Where he, remember, he was headed in order to extradite Christians back to Jerusalem in order uh, to be punished. And we saw that this encounter had left him blind. Remember, it left him blind and he had to be led into Damascus where they, he sat for three days in the dark. Sat for three days. He didn't eat, didn't drink, couldn't see a thing until this man named Ananias, who had been told in a vision by Jesus to go to Saul, go to him. And he goes to him, he lays his hands on him, he regains his sight, he's baptized, and he begins eating again. That's, that's where we left off, just kind of right there. So let's pick up the story. We're going to pick it up this morning in chapter 9 of Acts, verse 19. The first couple of verses say this. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, this is Saul. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And and has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? 
But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by, provo- by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So we see that, pretty interesting here, that right as soon as he was baptized, after he's baptized and receives his sight, he stays with the believers in, Amas- in, Ab- in Damascus. And what does it say? He what? Immediately. Immediately, he began preaching in the synagogues, proclaiming that Jesus was this long-awaited Messiah. Now, this had to have blown people away. It had to have. You're probably thinking, isn't this the guy that was that even says who's just been wreaking havoc for the followers of Jesus? Isn't this the guy that came for the here? The reason he's here is to take them back to Jerusalem in order to be punished? Isn't that why this guy's here? They must have been thinking, what's he saying? What's he talking about? What the heck? Now, I know that I used this illustration, not the same illustration, but the same guy last year, last week, because I just can't think of anybody more evil. Is this, so to put this in perspective, you think like if Adolf Hitler all of a sudden began to not only defend, but embrace and advocate Judaism. Imagine that would happen. Even starting up the Berlin chapter of the Anti-Defamation League, okay? That's how radical, look that up if you don't know who they are, the Anti-Defamation League. But that's how radical this was, that all of a sudden he was proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah. And we see that not only did he start doing it, it says that he grew strong in his ability not only to preach but to, confront, to confound the Jews that were there, that Jesus was the Son of God. Yeah, here's the thing. We also see now that now, and even we know that through the rest of his life and ministry, Paul's preaching about Jesus does not necessarily go over well with everybody, does it? He's not the most popular guy. Look at verse 23. Look what it says. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates at night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night, and they let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. How is that a response to your first foray into ministry? People want to kill you. Oh my goodness, that is just crazy. These people want him dead. It's like, welcome to following Jesus, Paul, or Saul, who's Paul, same guy. Welcome. This is rough. And we see that the cool thing is, though, we see that some of his friends find out that there are those that are in on the plot to kill him, waiting at the gate at night before they close it up to see if he's going to escape so they can grab him and kill him. But instead, they lower him in a basket at night out an opening in the city, a wall hole, out probably someone's house that was like built into the wall. That's just what a wild situation that is. Look what happens next. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he tempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. No kidding. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So here we see Saul returns to Jerusalem from where he originally came, and his first thing is to attempt to join into the disciples. And we see there's a little bit of a problem. Now, just back, step back a little bit here. If, if we, we know by Paul's own personal account, if you read in the first chapter of Galatians, that he didn't immediately return to Jerusalem. 
But instead, what he did, he went out to the, the region of Arabia for a time, most likely to intensely study the scriptures to better prepare himself for, for ministry, to really, to really work through, even though he was a high-ranking Pharisee and knew the scriptures, he kind of probably wanted to work through, okay, what is this Jesus the Messiah? What does it truly mean? And how am I supposed to communicate? How do I communicate this to the Jews and to the non-Jews? So he went out and prepared. But what we see here, it's likely that Luke figured that this wasn't pertinent information to his readers, so he just didn't include it. So I just know, I don't know if anybody's thinking that, but sometimes people see there's how the Bible contradicts itself. He went, no, Luke just didn't feel it was necessary for his readers to know that. So we see that Paul eventually does return to Jerusalem, but as a completely different man. Completely different. His mission has completely changed. He left Jerusalem on a mission to punish followers of Jesus, and he returns an enthusiastic and impassionate advocate for their faith. What an amazing turn of, of events here. Yet we see that, like I said, his, his conversion met with skepticism with the apostles. And you can understand why, right? They're like, uh, wait a second. They remember they remember that this was the guy that inflicted severe punishment on the believers of there. I mean, they're probably thinking, how do we know that this isn't a hoax? How do we know that this isn't some kind of scheme to lull us into his confidence only for him to turn on us? They don't know. He doesn't have any letters from the Pope or letters from whatever, or letters from his boss. Yeah, no one knows. We also, but then we see this wonderful thing happen. This guy named Barnabas comes along. Barnabas comes along and vouches for him. Somehow Barnabas knows all about Saul, and he takes him, brings him to the disciples here. And what's interesting in this wording here, and this could have been a whole nother long thing on this sermon about how vital it is that we are, have brothers and sisters involved in our lives, especially as we're involved in ministry for the support and for the care. Because we see that Barnabas came in, and the wording here actually has the, uh, the wording it's talking about, like, Barnabas took him under his wing. That's kind of really what that means. Barnabas took him under his wing, and he went and he explained to the apostles, hey, listen, Jesus appeared to him, okay? He appeared to him on the road to Damascus, and he boldly preached in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Paul needed a Barnabas. He desperately needed Barnabas. We think so often that the strong people or the people that we think are going to have influence and things like that are the people that they've gotten past. I need to get to a place where I get past needing accountability or I get to the place where I get past desperately needing my fellow brothers and sisters in order to help me to really minister for God. That's a lie from the enemy. I can't tell you how many people you, I, you know and I know and I know personally leaders in ministry that have fallen and much of it has to do with not having people in their lives that are coming alongside of them. And that's just the leaders in ministry. That's just not the regular Joes that are all falling and getting into all this kind of stuff. We need each other desperately. Well, now, obviously, they take Barnabas's word. They take his word because look what happens in the very next verse. <laughs> I love it. Right into it. So he went in and out amongst them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking, once again, to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Once again, Paul was in desperate need of people to come alongside him and help him in his ministry. 
Because I'm sure at the beginning here with the enthusiastic blessing of, of the apostles concerning this new Saul, the very next thing we see is Saul going out. He's going to be preaching boldly about Jesus. And this had to be mind-blowing, just like it was in Damascus. Can you imagine the people in Jerusalem going, what? Wait a second. This guy was going nuts. He was on a big bandstand not too long ago of tirade about these, guys, these, these Christians, these people of the way. And now he's, what? They, they, they just can't figure it out. It's, it's got to be blowing everybody away. And look what, look what Luke, Luke does. He specifically, are, he notes that he argues and debates with the Hellenistic Jews. I don't know if that sounds familiar at all, that word, the Hellenistic Jews. These were these Greek-speaking uh, Jews whose heritage was really outside of Israel. Remember, these were the same Jews. Remember back in, in chapter 6 where we saw that the Hellenistic Jews were in an uproar because they're widows? We're not being taken care of properly by the church. So these are the same people, but these aren't the ones within the church, though, this time. And we see that these arguments that Saul has with these guys leads again to them wanting to kill him, just like those in Damascus. I guess Paul never read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. He just didn't get it. He was just all in, all in for Christ, Okay. Once again, we see that he needs his friends to intervene on his behalf, and they lead him to this port town of Caesarea, where he boards a ship and goes to Tarsus, which at the time was a, a really a big cultural center and happened to be where Paul was from. So he goes back to his, or Saul goes back to his hometown. So real, it's a crazy story. It's a wild story, his beginnings. But I want to spend the last bout of our time here. I want to, I want to start to talk about what stands out in this story, Okay. Because what seems to stand out in this story from the very beginning of his life in Christ is that Paul was thoroughly motivated to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus from the moment on. And if we read later in all his things, remember, he even talks about, I buffet my body. I do all these things. I discipline myself. He, we see in many of his letters to the churches to the extent of what he tells people he does in order to remain motivated to be fully devoted to Jesus because he knows that if he doesn't do discipline, if he's not motivated in some way, if there's not some intrinsic and extrinsic motivation for him, he will not stay the course. And this is the Apostle Paul. Think about us and all the stuff that we have going. Now, though, although most people's conversions aren't as dramatic as his, now we'll start in on those notes that you, if you want to take them. Over and over again in the New Testament, we see, number one, that when people gave their lives fully to following Jesus, there was, whether it was individually or as a community, a deep desire to be wholeheartedly devoted to him and the spreading of the gospel, no matter the cost. No matter what. We saw it first with the apostles. Remember right away after the day of Pentecost, they got arrested for sharing the gospel. They were not going to stand down. Then remember next was Stephen. Stephen. How did that end? 
<laughs> yeah, Stephen, he proclaimed the whole, the good news. He went through the whole Bible, the whole New Te- Old Testament with these guys, basically. And he ended up dying for it. Then there was Philip, who we saw was actually one of the people that was fleeing Jerusalem. And remember, he continued to be faithful witness for Jesus even as he was out there. Remember in Samaria, he was a faithful witness to the people in Samaria. Then remember, he ran into the Ethiopian eunuch and he just kept on going. He was, he was all in. No matter what the circumstances, no matter he was, where he was, we know that despite the intense persecution, the church continued to explode, continued to grow. So why was that? Why did that happen? And how can we have that same motivation to be wholehearted, devoted followers of Jesus? How can we do that today? Because we know we struggle with it. We know that it is hard. Well, number two, it's really, here's how it works. It's through the everyday awareness and recognition of God's incredible mercy and grace towards us that ultimately motivates us to be wholeheartedly devoted to him. Once again, you'll see this through Paul's letter all the time. Remember, he, he, he'll start a letter or end a letter with the grace, the grace of our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was so, and he'll end a letter that way. I end this by the grace and the peace. of He, told, he was so aware of what it meant to, uh, to have that in front of himself all the time. Now, our conversions may not be as radical as Saul's, but just like Saul, those of us that are true followers of Jesus, who have, we have had our lives radically transformed by trusting him. And really like Saul, like Philip, like the millions of other believers that, are, that have come before us, really this, this continual awareness of what Jesus has done for us and who we are now in him is what enables us to remain motivated to be wholeheartedly devoted to him. It's what enables us to love and to serve him and others no matter the cost. It's this motivation that we have to have or else we'll just get so distracted, right? Number two, wait, no, I did number two on your notes, didn't I? Yeah, the reality, we're coming up on three. The reality is though, here's the thing. Just like when we say, I'm going to lose those 15 pounds, I'm losing them, okay? Or I'm going to exercise four times a week or I'm going to have that quiet time every day. As time goes by, oftentimes what happens? We could, because of the spiritual battle we're in, because of our laziness, because of our self-centeredness, whatever it might be, we tend to lose our motivation to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. If you've been in the church long enough, great hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. The, the psalm, he, the, the writer of that knew it. He knew it. That's where our hearts are prone. Our hearts are prone to wander, to not stay devoted, to not be wholehearted. We need to remember that. Our hearts are prone to that. So we must obviously then need something to motivate us on a regular basis to fight against that sense of wandering 
that we have. So how do we maintain or how do we cultivate this motivation to continually be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus due to remembering this grace and this mercy? Number three on your notes, notes there. The answer lies in continuing or returning to a pure love of Jesus above all else. Now, that sounds very elementary, but we're going to dive into that a little bit deeper. Continue, return to a pure love of Jesus above all else. A love of Jesus in thought and in word and indeed above everything else. And I think this is key because so often a lot of us say, of course I love Jesus. I had a great conversation. One of my sons this morning called me. One of my sons called me today. He was on a prayer walk and he said, dad, I'm just, oh, I need some help here. I'm feeling this, I'm going through this, I'm seeking God in this, what, what, what does that mean? And really what it got down to is I could see that what was going on in his life was that something was trying to pull him away from the most central thing. And that's the love of Jesus above everything else, above a desire to succeed, above this desire to even to be content and be happy where I'm at. So we had a really good conversation about that and about what it means to invite Jesus into that whole thing and know that our heart is prone to wander. Here's an example for me. For me, literally, this all began at age 18. Hume Lake Christian Camps. This is what happened to me. Uh, although I had been a Christian since I was 12, I know I prayed to receive Christ. I, I was slowly growing. I, you know, in my faith through high school, it really started to come about. But then it was when I was at camp, when the Spirit of God, I, I, I mean, I'm serious, he grabbed a hold of me, or maybe I finally let him, <laughs> let the Spirit and listen to the Spirit's prodding. And I, it, I can still remember exactly where I was exactly where I was sitting in that chapel when I became so overwhelmingly aware of God's grace and his mercy over, and I, and I began to weep. I just, I just began to just weep profusely. And I knew from that day forward that I wanted to serve, with all, serve him with all my heart in whatever way, wherever that meant. Now, not everybody has that kind of like, kind of thing, but I can point back to a time when I remember that God showed, I just was willing to see, oh my gosh, who you are and who I am in you. And it just changed me radically. Really, I believe that that's the day I truly fell in love with Jesus above all else. That doesn't mean I wasn't saved. That's what we know as a Christian, but I truly believe in my limited understanding, that's the day when Jesus became the love of my life. Sorry, babe. Jesus became the love of my life and still is. But I know that I'm prone to wander from that. Very much so. So what maintaining or returning to the pure love of Jesus above all else practically means? What does that practically mean then for all of us? What does it mean for some of us? Because some of us need to do what Nelson, I believe, has preached on this too, that Jesus said through the apostle John to the church in Ephesus when he talked to them about returning to their first love. 
He talked about this is what it's going to do it. You need to return to your first love. Because remember, after commending them for their patient endurance and their intolerance of evil and how they'd been suffering for Christ and exposing false prophets, all these good things, Jesus then confronts them on something. He says this in Revelations 2, 4, he says, but I have this against you. This has been great. I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And I'm sure they would be thinking, wait, all this stuff we're doing? We have, I mean, we've been intolerant of evil in our midst and we've suffered for Jesus. We've exposed the false prophets. We've endured. And you're telling us that our love, we've lost our first love? You see, publicly, This church was standing up for Christ and what was right. Yes, this is what is right. But what Jesus is saying is privately they had lost their pure love for Jesus. They stood against evil, but they tolerated apathy and indifference towards Jesus and towards each other. Sound like Christianity that we might know of today? Does this sound a little, not to be... Not to be dark or anything, does that sound a bit like a, a Western American Christianity to you? Just a little bit? Hey, we'll do what's right. We'll stand up for these issues and we'll say, here's what we believe. But would Jesus come back to us and say, that's great, awesome, wonderful, but there's something missing. The main point is missing. You've lost your pure, intense love for me more than anything else. That's what he is saying here. And he says, yet the remedy for this, here's the remedy. And he puts it right in the very next verse. The remedy for this apathy and this difference is this in verse five. Look what he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, And do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you want to understand the lampstand stuff, go talk to Nelson. He's got that better than I do. All right? But that was an important thing here. What Jesus says here, number four in your notes, is in order to return to our first love, we must first remember. We must first remember and remember back to what it was like when the Spirit of God first revealed the truth of God's grace and mercy to us, okay? Remembering that time when we went, oh my goodness, oh, I get it, wow. Remember, what you felt or what you experienced when you became intensely aware of his great love for you and you literally or figuratively, one of the ways, fell to your knees broken yet full of incredible gratitude. Remember that time, people? Does anybody remember that? Because that's what he's saying to you. Remember, remember what that was like. Remember what it was like when you were doing, and then right after that, you just went all out. Remember what that was like. And really what, that, what this means in some ways is we need to really understand what it means to really follow Jesus. I think some of you are going, God, Rob, I, I, gosh, Rob, I've never had that. I've never come to a place where I've just been broken and just so like, oh my gosh, my sin is so dirty and bad and you are so good. I want you. I love you. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't mean you're not a follower of Jesus. I'm not saying that's not a, you're not a Christian. 
But I would examine your heart. I would examine, because just because you prayed a prayer does not mean you're a follower of Jesus. Just because you attended church, or just because you, whatever you've done for years, does not believe, mean you're a follower of Jesus at all. He's saying this is what means you're a follower of Jesus. Remember he told them, he said, come back to that first love, or all that stuff you've done, that means nothing. I'm, I'm taking you out of the picture. That's huge. That is big. So that's the first thing. Remember, we can talk about that for a long time, but remember what it was like or what it's like when that time when you were just the most, oh, and all in. Next thing Jesus says, number five on your notes is, Jesus says that to do is repent. Remember we talked about repent literally means to make a spiritual about face. It means admitting and confessing to Jesus how we've become apathetic and indifferent in our love towards him and each other, and then accepting his grace and forgiveness. It's just simply saying, I've been apathetic. I have not loved you like I should. And sometimes, my friends, this is a prayer we need to pray every day, <laughs> or very often at least. I have been apathetic, or I've been indifferent towards my love for you, God, and my love for, for, for your people and for others to come to know you. I bet. Just simply admit it. That's what he's saying to do. Just repent. Admit that, you've, that you're not going in the right direction and start going in the other direction and accept his grace and forgiveness. It means coming to Jesus with our shortcomings and knowing that he'll restore us. I love what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter four. He says, tell us, let us, wait, it says, let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's so good. Go boldly. Go. Don't be ashamed. Don't say, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to tell. He knows. <laughs> and he's waiting for us to say that, to come to him. Lastly, Jesus says to return. He says, return back to doing the things that helped nurture our love for Jesus and for others. What are the things that we did that really fired us up for being in love with Jesus? For many of us, this is going to really change, require a change of our priorities if we're going to go back to or even begin doing those things, like actually making and carving out time to be in God's word and spend time with God. Aren't you tired? Are you tired of saying, I want to, but I just can't seem to make it happen? Change priorities. That's what he's saying. You want this? You want a true love for me? He's saying, stop messing around. I love you. I want this with you. Come back. Be with me. Make time to be with me. Make time to be with other believers because you know that is what's going to encourage and spur on our faith. No, I'm just going to do this alone. I'm not really into all that. What? That's not how it works. It doesn't work that way. We need one another. We've seen that. It means also carving out things that, to, to do that we do. Like, I love what this one writer put it this week that I say. This one writer says that we need to do things that make our heart sing for Jesus. Isn't that great? Things that make our heart sing for Jesus. I mean, for you, it could be a walk in nature. For me, one of the things that makes my heart sing for Jesus, I put my ear earbuds in and I go walk up Higgins Trail with uh, worship music on, crying and everybody looking at me like I'm an idiot. 
You know, for me, that's, that's for me, that just makes me just, I need to get away from my surroundings and that, that just really works for me. For some of you, it's writing in a journal. Others, you love to share your faith. Whatever it is, we need to be doing that. What makes your heart sing for you? And you're thinking, Rob, I don't have any time to do anything like that. I'm not talking about a major long thing. Just those little tidbits of things that make our heart sing for Jesus and remind us, oh, you are amazing. We need to be doing those things. It also means making sure that when we come here on a Sunday morning or whenever we get together for worship and hearing God's word, that we're fully engaged. How often do you find yourself sitting out here, and I'm not blaming, I'm not saying it's easy, and just so preoccupied with something completely different than what's going on in here? That's the enemy at work hard. It takes discipline, and I know it. It takes discipline just like it takes me discipline to prepare for what I'm doing up here, I know that it takes discipline to sit out there and to be fully engaged and to be willing to hear what the Spirit of God hears from me and not just ready to say, I like that, I didn't like that, or that was awesome, or that wasn't awesome. That song, I wish you would have sung it. No, not at all. It's saying, I am engaged. I'm going to be engaged. I'm going to be ready for what? I had a, uh, a youth pastor tell me once two things. And this is one when I was going, just getting out of high school. He said, uh, don't stay out too late or party too hard on Saturday night because you got something very important coming in the morning. And then he said, be careful of what you watch and listen to before you get to church. I know that might sound a little legalistic or whatever, but the whole idea was preparing myself. We should all be preparing ourselves that when we get here on Sunday or Wednesday or Friday night or whatever we're getting there, we are going not just to be a consumer, that's our, that's our culture, right? I'm going to go to consume. I hope it's good. That's not why we come here. We come here to meet with Jesus and to meet with Jesus' people, knowing that what I believe is that the Holy Spirit does something on Sunday mornings that he typically doesn't do during the rest of the week because of the uniqueness of what we're doing here. So be all here. Be engaged. But it takes discipline. It's not easy. Get here on time. Be ready in your hearts and in our minds, okay? I know things come up. We all that stuff. Don't worry. No one's taking roll or watching. Come. No, none of that's happening. But this is, I'm saying, just for us. Remember, we're trying to regain that, that love that we had at first, okay? It also means some, for some of us returning to or really even some of us beginning to really use, as that phrase goes, our time, our talent, and our treasure for his glory, are we using all of that, seeing that it's all his, and letting him, it's he, he can have it, and he can have it in abundance, okay? We're going to be talking about that in a few weeks when we talk about giving. Be ready. Uh, so, here's what I want to do. I want to end this section by looking at this last, we actually have one more verse. Uh, look, what the, look what this last verse says about what being motivated for being wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus actually looked like, but what it looks like on a corporate level, okay? This is kind of what it looks like when we're all collectively or corporate level. Look what it says, verse 31 says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So we see here that the church had spread throughout the surrounding regions, is now not only experiencing peace, but it's growing, and it's growing strong. Now, here's the thing. Most people would assume, of course it's growing strong. 
Saul's been converted, right? The persecution is, the persecution is over. That, no wonder they're growing strong. But that's not it. We see it in this verse. It doesn't say that, does it? It's like, and thank goodness Paul got saved and got that dastardly guy out of the way so they get on to the business of doing church. That's not what it says at all. Look what he says here, and this is number seven. Here. Notice the peace that they were experiencing and the growth and the strength wasn't due to the lack of person, persecution, but to two things. It was first due to the people walked in the fear of the Lord. They walked in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, what this refers to is perceiving God's with this, God with this sense of reverence, with this sense of awe, seeing him as so completely holy and just and righteous. But do we see him that way? That's what it's saying. They saw him. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm coming into the presence of an incredibly holy and amazing God. This is awesome. It goes beyond just respecting God. It means this having such a reverence for him that it profoundly impacts the way that we think and the way that we live our lives. The other factor is this. It's, it's that essential factor that contributed to the church being like this was the comfort that was supplied by the Holy Spirit. Comfort. Listen to what, once again, listen to what Webster's Dictionary says about com- what comfort is. Comfort is to give strength and hope to, to cheer, to ease the grief of trouble, to console. Does anybody here want that? Anybody here like a little injection of comfort? This isn't comfort like, oh, it's still so good. But of these things, strength, hope, ease the grief to be consoled. I know I've got things in my life that I'm craving that to be injected into. This word comfort, by the way, in verse 31, is this word paraclesis, which is the same word that describes the Holy Spirit. It means someone that's called alongside to somebody else or someone who pleads that person's case before a judge. It's like a, it's like a counselor or an intercessor, a, a helper, someone that encourages and comforts. And this is the beauty, you guys. Jesus promised that every single one of us that are his followers would have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Look what he said in John. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. There's that word paraclesis again. To be with you for a few days. Forever. Forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells within, with you and will be in you. You see, one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to speak God's will to us and to, to teach us about Jesus. You know, anything that you know about God, anything you know about Jesus, that was revealed by the Holy Spirit. That is his role. He helps us to understand his ways. And those are the ways that are going to ultimately bring comfort. So often we get sucked into what the world says is do this to find comfort. You know what? Do this, you know, or we, get the, or we even go so far as getting that kind of the Oprah theology, you know, where grab some of this good, grab some of that good, grab some of this good, you get a car, you get a car, you know, and we start thinking that that's, that's what's going to make us happy. That's what's going to give us this comfort that we're looking for. We say, no, it's only going to come as we allow the Holy Spirit to speak it to us and we listen to it 
That's how it's going to happen. The early church understood this. They understood this. And what's still true today, the last thing on, on your notes, to be a community that experienced true peace and power doesn't mean the absence of persecution. It's contingent on fearing the Lord and depending on the Holy Spirit to provide true comfort. That's where it comes from. We would have thought that they said, no, it comes from the fact that Paul is now a Christian. No, that's not where it came from. They feared the Lord. They had this reverent awe. When they came together, I can imagine they just, the early church was just so in awe. When they took communion, which they didn't do it like this, they took it probably in the context of a meal, and they took it and they remembered the bread and the body. They were probably thinking, oh, oh my gosh. I know this isn't actually the God, his body, and actually his blood, but I sense I am in his presence in a way that is just oh, amazing. Do we do that? Have we lost that? I know it's easy to get distracted from that. My prayer, you guys, is that we will be a body of believers that really is like this, that we are ceaselessly motivated by God's incredible grace and mercy towards us. And so that will enable us to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus as we walk in this healthy fear of the Lord and the comfort from the Holy Spirit. Um, oh, went long, man. A couple questions. Turn to the person next to you and say, how would you describe what it means to love Jesus more than anything else? You don't even have to know that you love Jesus right now. But what do you think that means? What would that mean to love Jesus more than anything else. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and, and discuss it real quick. All right, let's hear a few. Anybody want to share a couple things? How would you describe what it means to love Jesus above all else? Let me hear a couple. Just let us. Yes, Mike. Yeah. Okay, so we'd be, you would describe it by just having that, maybe having that recognition just before you like crazy. Yes, good. What else? What does it mean? Describe what it means to love Jesus above all else. It could be actions, thoughts, anything. It doesn't matter. this is a conversation we could have a long time. I wish we had another separate thing that we went to where we talked about this thing because I think we talk about, hey, I love Jesus. But what does that really mean? I love my wife. I love pizza. <laughs> I lo you know, I mean, what, so what does it mean to love Jesus above all? I would encourage you this week to just really think about that through, the, through yourself. What does it mean to just be totally love Jesus above everything else. Second question is, what are some traits or characteristics, don't, this, you can just share it out loud, of a person who is wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus? What are some traits or some characteristics that just kind of stand out about someone who's wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus? What just pops into your head? Yep. Oh, no, that's you. Oh. <laughs> uh, 
someone who, who speaks the truth mm-hmm. in love. Yes. You know, uh, yeah. Any moment, every moment. Yeah. You know, and, and they probably look different mm-hmm. and act differently mm-hmm. uh, to you know anybody in the world anywhere. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yes. Not the f- no fear of man. Whew, that's a big one, yeah. Anything else? Those are great. Um, I, I, we're not going to talk about this. I just want to encourage you this week to be um, maybe thinking in your mind, what are some things that have caused you to possibly lose your first love? Or what are the things that pull you away from making Jesus the love, you love Jesus more than anything else? Identify those things. Now my therapist side's coming out. Identify the things in your life that cause you to have stinking thinking when it comes to who you are in Jesus. Identify those things. And then think about some things that you can do that will make your heart sing for Jesus. What can I do that will help make my heart sing? Even if it's for one minute, maybe it's in the car. Or when I first wake up, or before I go to bed, or when I'm with so-and-so, what is it that will make your heart sing for Jesus? Because we know that we are prone to wander. And I know many of you are in the same boat I am. We long to be wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus and to love him and to love others. Let's ask him for the help, and let's rely on each other for it as well. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, once again, your, your word that speaks so um, boldly to us and speaks such wonderful truth that we need to hear, God. And I needed this message so much that I needed to know and remember that I am prone to wander. I know it, but I, keep, I just wonder sometimes why I get where I get. So I pray, God, that you would help all of us to remember on a regular basis, to return to our first love of, of remembering how great you are, how wonderful and beautiful you are, how much you lavish your love on us and your forgiveness and your grace, that you're a perfect dad willing to send his own son to be brutally sacrificed for us so that we could have these things. God, we deeply desire that, God. Now, Jesus did a great good thing to help us to do remember <laughs> his grace and mercy. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup and he said, this is my bread. This is my body, which is for you. Do this and remember, take this and do this in remembrance of me. And he did it with the cup. He took it the same way. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him. And let him know how much we love him. If you don't know Jesus in that way, I would invite you. There's going to be people up here to pray that you could talk with them about what it means to truly give yourself to Jesus and have him as the love of your life.